This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au well, we're going to look at Titus chapter 2 this morning, and uh, we're really continuing this theme of what it looks like to have genuine faith outworked in your life. But before we dive into this passage, I remember reading an article on the, uh, on the internet, as you do, uh, this article popped up, and it said, 37 ways to make yourself more attractive to the opposite sex. It was clearly an article targeted at young men who had no idea what to do. And this is some of the advice, the sage wisdom that this article offered young guys who are trying to attract a potential life partner. The first piece of advice was groom was groom. So things like take a shower. If you haven't had a shower and you smell, you're offensive. Take a shower. Cut your hair. Get a haircut. Shave. Things like if you have bad breath, it's really off-putting. Brush your teeth. I mean, the reality is some people just need the most basic, simple advice of how to meet someone and be attractive to them and woo them. Things like um, don't stalk them. That's probably a really good piece of advice. Don't stalk them. There's not much more that's off-putting than someone stalking you, be that online or in real life. I'm not sure which is worse, but don't stalk. Um, or, or this piece of advice, which I thought was bizarre. Use pheromone spray. Because at, at, according to the article, women are just attracted to these pheromone sprays. And I thought to myself, what, what a con. What a con way of trying to woo someone that you would spray yourself with something that would trick them into thinking that they like you and they don't really like you. And then, you know, you're going to be a slave to this pheromone spray for the rest of your life. Bad piece of advice. But the, but the best one was just keep it real. Be yourself. Now, totally contrary to the rest of advice, all the other 36 points of advice that the article had just offered, the last point was just be yourself, keep it real. So I thought... Yeah, stay in your pajamas, don't shave, don't brush your teeth, don't shower. That's what it means to just be yourself as an 18-year-old guy. Sometimes you're not sure whether they're a hipster or they're homeless. It's hard to really tell. But the point of the article is there is so much that you can do or not do that makes you attractive to someone or makes you entirely off-putting to someone. And I want to suggest, and Paul suggests, that the same is true for us as Christians. There is so much that we can do or not do that makes our message attractive, that makes the Christian faith attractive or not attractive at all. And so my one sentence summary of Titus chapter 2 this morning is this, that grace-motivated godliness makes people gravitate towards the gospel, the four Gs, right? Grace-motivated godliness makes people gravitate towards the gospel or genuine fruit, sorry, genuine faith works out fruit in our lives, and fruit must come from having deep roots in the gospel. That's what I think Paul is trying to say in Titus chapter 2. But let's just catch up on where we were a couple of weeks ago. Paul has written to his young ministry apprentice, Titus, and asked him to establish leaders in this new church on the island of Crete and appoint elders in that church. And we saw two weeks ago all of the qualifications that Paul lists for elders. And 16, 15 of the 16 characteristics are all about character. They're all about godliness. And then he tells Titus literally to go on and teach almost all of those same things to the rest of the church to live that out. And so the leaders in God's church ought to model and exemplify 
and be examples of what it looks like to live this type of life. But the church in Crete was somewhat messed up. In Crete, uh, we saw in chapter 1, verse 2 of Titus, one of their own poets that Paul quotes, and it says, their own poet says this about his own culture, Cretans or Crescens are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And it's into this context that Titus is thrown to be a pastorate. Welcome to your pastorate, young Titus. These are the people you have to work with. But thankfully, Paul believes that out of the rough of this culture that believed really that the worship of the Greek pantheon of gods originated with them, that the gods were elevated Crescens. And out of this context of laziness and a lack of self-control that the gospel was going to create a beautiful diamond, a beautiful church, because that's what grace does as it outworks itself in community. And Titus is to teach godliness. It says that in chapter 2 verse 1. Teach what accords with sound doctrine, teach godliness to everyone, to men and to women, to young and to old. And so we're going to walk our way through the categories this morning that Paul says to Titus, this is what you were to teach to all sorts of different people in the life of the church. The first is to the older men. This is what it says in chapter 2, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfast. Paul wants the older men in the church to be dignified, to be men of maturity and humility. And they are to be examples and models of the three chief Christian virtues, faith, hope, love, and hope, which Paul calls steadfastness or perseverance in this category. They're to model what it looks like to do that. Secondly, to the older women, he says in verse 3, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the younger women. That word reverent there means you're to behave as is fitting for a holy person. Literally, he's saying, I want you to behave like priestesses who would serve in the temple who would be women who would serve in the temple and the requirement of them would be a really high standard of holiness and godliness. Literally, Paul is saying, I want you to do the daily practice of the presence of God. As if you were serving in God's temple, be women who are reverent and holy, not gossips, not slanderers, not drinking much wine and drunk. Instead, they ought to teach and their teaching should be based on a consistent life that models and practices what they preach. They're to teach and equip the younger women. Now the picture you get here in this church is that of cross-generational ministry, of the older people in the church investing in and discipling the younger people in the church. And I've been privileged to be in churches where that experience has been true. And to give you an example, for those of you who know Isaac Viglioni, Isaac was led and discipled for six years by a good friend of mine, James, James Galea, who invested in Isaac as a young 11-year-old boy all the way through to his uh, end of school, invested in him, discipled him, mentored him, poured his life into him for six years. James, on the other hand, was led and mentored by a guy called Kev, who was older than him, and who led him all the way through high school and invested in him and discipled him and mentored him and spoke the truth to him 
And Kev was invested in by a guy called Chris, who led him and led, actually led him to faith and discipled him. And so what you see, not only in the church in the first century, but in many of the churches that we've grown up, is an investment in the next generation. And that's the picture we get here from Titus chapter 2, that there is one generation investing in the next The second picture we get is a picture of the priesthood of all believers. That's just a fancy way of saying that ministry is not to be done just by a select few. It's not that Paul says, all right, Titus, you appoint elders and the elders do everything. It's not what he's saying here. He's saying the whole church is responsible to invest in each other. It's the people who are responsible for discipleship. I remember listening to a, uh, an old school Southern American preacher who put it like this. He said, the ownership for discipleship is on the membership. Now, it's totally cheesy, but it kind of stuck in my head, partly because of the Southern accent, but also because it's accurate. The ownership for discipleship is on the membership. That is, it is the members of the church who need to own The project of discipleship. Discipleship is a community project. We're all involved in it. It's not like anyone at Anchor can sit on the sideline and watch the main game taking place. The picture of the church here is of cross-generational ministry and of every person ministry. We're all involved in this. Now I know for some of you, you've lamented the loss of the older generation here at Anchor and uh, that there's probably a sense where our church reflects maybe a narrower demographic of people here but it's not like there's no one here with any life experience at all and uh, for those of us who are somewhat you know approaching middle life me and Seti and there are some who are slightly older than us and what a blessing people are who have life experience who have raised children there is something beautiful about that But some of you have lamented the loss of being at a church with a much broader demographic of people involved. But I want to say that cross-generational ministry doesn't necessarily require a 20 to 30 year gap between you and the person who's going to invest in you. Because I think what cross-generational ministry can look like is simply investing in the people who are at a life stage before you. So if you think about young adults or uni students investing in the teenagers in our church, and that's exactly what we've seen happen with our youth ministry launching. So Lockie and Miriam are pioneering that youth ministry, but serving on that team are Tim and Gabby, who are uni students investing in the teenagers in our church. Or perhaps it's young workers investing in the uni students or perhaps it's young families investing in the young workers or those who have got teenagers investing in those who have got three-nagers and helping you figure out what it looks like to you know try and parent children who are still in the terrible twos Uh, whatever stage of life it is investing in the person who is the step behind you that still is cross-generational ministry and I mean even at that level we've got five generations of people in this church let alone those who have got more life experience. And so I want to suggest instead of waiting for the person ahead of you to come and invest in you and disciple you and mentor you, be the person to someone else. That was the case in this church in Crete. This is a first-generation church. So when they all got saved, the oldest person in the church just so happened to be the most experienced person in life. They had no one else ahead of them. 
And yet Paul still expects them to invest in each other. And so I want to encourage us, particularly as we head into a new series in term three about what it looks like to be disciples, to think about church with that framework, with that lens. The church is cross-generational. We all invest in those who are the life stage below us and that every single person has a part to play in it. That is the picture that Paul has for this church here in Crete. And in particular, he wants the older women to invest in the younger women in the church. And this is what he has instructions for them in verse 4 and 5. Can I have a bit more light on my notes here? Is that possible? That's a little bit better. Thank you. Maybe I need to put my glasses on. I'm getting old. I'm now primed to invest in all of you because I'm... Anyway. Chapter 2, verse 4. Young women to, ha- to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, perhaps as Hope read that, you've not heard anything else that was said from the moment Hope read that verse until now. Because as we read this, it kind of bristles our 21st century sensibilities, does it not? We think, well, this sounds really old-fashioned and archaic. So let me offer a couple of quick qualifiers before trying to unpack this verse. And honestly, you could preach 10 sermons on this and still only scratch the surface of the scholarship that's been poured out on paper on this. But the first qualification is this. When Paul says working at home, he doesn't mean that women cannot have a career or pursue a job. For the most part, a woman's work in the first century was tied to their home because their business and their work was often tied to their home. There generally weren't CBDs. It was an agricultural society. And so most people worked a farm or worked a trade. And then women would participate in that role alongside their husbands. Many women were the business managers of their family businesses. Some were quite wealthy. And so we know that Paul doesn't mean you can't have a job. You can't pursue a career. You can't pursue a vocation. He is saying don't neglect your home. In the same, he could say the same thing to men. Don't neglect your family. Don't connect, neglect your ministry to, towards the home. But there was something happening in this context that made this relevant for Paul to say to these young women. The second thing there is that Paul's instruction to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, what does that word mean? As we hear that in the 21st century, that sounds horrendous. It sounds sexist and chauvinistic. But we need to understand this word in terms of how it's used in the Bible. This is not an automatically negative term. It cannot be because this term is used of Jesus. Jesus submits himself to his earthly parents, to Joseph and Mary. In a a good sense, Jesus submits himself and surrenders his will to the will of his heavenly Father. We see that happening. And so this term cannot be a negative term automatically. We need to decide from the context as to how this term ought to be translated. There is a beautiful equality within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet within the Trinity, we also see a sense of order and hierarchy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see the Scriptures unpack that sense of order for us. And yet, as Jesus submits himself to his Father, that does not diminish his sense of equality, his godness. He is still equal, but there is order within the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And the same could be said of marriage, because marriage is a picture of that relationship. The second thing to say is this is not a statement of inferiority. Women are no less equal. They are equal in value, in worth, in dignity, in purpose. They're equal in their salvation. They're equal as image bearers of God. This term does not diminish any of that. The third thing to say is that this is not the relationship that all women have to all men. It says to their own husbands. This is a relationship that exists in the safe confines of a covenantal, that is an promise of unconditional love, marriage. Only in that context, to their own husbands. And it, it is not coerced. This is freely given. And finally, this is not to obey your husbands. Paul does not expect women to obey their husbands into sin or to put up with some form of abuse or neglect or domineering behavior. Now, we associate all of those things with this word because of our cultural context. Paul had none of that in mind when he writes this to this church. So what does it mean? Paul, as he's writing this to this church, has this expectation that there is a divine call on these wives to honor and respect and champion their husband's leadership in the home according to their own giftedness. It's what it looks like to do that. And we need to realize that the expression of what that looks like in the first century is probably very different to what that is look, looks like in the 21st century. But Paul still has this beautiful picture of what it looks like for a marriage relationship to express the differences between a man and a woman, a husband and wife in a way that mirrors the relationship between Jesus and his church. And so as we come to an instruction like that in the scriptures, how do we interpret it? How do we interpret that in the 21st century? Well, we've really got a couple of choices. The first is to say, well, Paul is wrong. He made a mistake. Uh, we don't necessarily need to believe what Paul said in this instance because he's wrong. Now, that simply won't fly for us as Bible-believing Christians because we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. That it's true that the Scriptures come to us as an inerrant Scripture. That is, they're without error, without fault. Paul wrote what he wrote as he was led on by the Holy Spirit. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. That is, that it is uttered off his lips and authoritative. And so we refuse to believe the lie that we're wiser than God. If we can't believe Paul, then what do we believe? We simply skim through the Bible and pick and choose what we like and reject the rest. We, cannot, we simply cannot say Paul was wrong and claim the authority of the Scriptures in our lives. So what else could we do? The second way we could approach this is to say that Paul is speaking merely culturally. That he is speaking into a first century context about what it looked like for wives to be godly. That doesn't necessarily equate or translate to 21st century. Now you could, you could argue that and there's some evidence that might suggest that, that that could be a good argument. Like in the first century, this is what is known as a household code. There is a list of instructions to men and women, to children and slaves. And we find a couple of them scattered throughout the scriptures. Ephesians 5 and 6, we see it in 1 Peter 3. We see it in some of the pastoral epistles like Titus and Timothy. And we also see them in first century culture. 
There are household codes about what it looks like for a man to behave and what it looks like for a woman to behave and what it looks like for children and slaves to behave in the household as is fitting to culture. And as we scan the non-Christian versions of the household codes, we see some similarities between the characteristics that the culture deems is appropriate for women and some of the things that we see here in the scriptures. So there is some evidence to suggest that there's some overlap. The question is, what does the overlap mean? Does it mean that Paul is simply copying his culture or capitulating to his culture? Or does it mean that the culture is simply reflecting God's good order and purposes for marriage and relationships? The final option, the final way of uh, translating this is to say that Paul is speaking transculturally. So this isn't just a a moment in time instruction, but this is an instruction for all of time across all cultures and all times. That Paul is picking up on a small part of a larger story in Scripture about what marriage looks like and about what marriage roles look like. And we can see from those other verses in Ephesians 5 or 1 Peter 3 or some of the other passages in Scripture going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 that God has a vision for what marriage looks like. And he wants men to love and to lead and to serve and to nurture and to protect their wives and their families. And he wants women to honor and respect and champion that leadership. That's, that's his vision for what marriage looks like in the context of unconditional love, commitment and covenant. And the, the thing that God desires in that is that that relationship would mirror and be part of a broader narrative that God is telling, a broader story, and that is the story of Jesus and the church. That, that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is his bride and there is a parallel that happens in scripture between that relationship and the relationship between man and woman. And so we could say that Paul is here in a very summarized fashion, not like he does in Ephesians 5, not like Peter does in 1 1 Peter 3, but in a really summarized fashion, just kind of throwing to that big picture idea of what marriage and relationship looks like. Whichever way you want to interpret it, what we do need to say is that God has a vision for marriage that is healthy, that is flourishing, that is beautiful, that is God-honoring, that is safe, that points to the gospel of Jesus. But I do want to say this, that if there is any man who uses a verse like this to abuse, to threaten, for any form of domineering, behavior in his marriage and family, then you are not being obedient to this verse. In fact, you're contradicting exactly the type of leadership that Jesus calls husbands to in their families. And if we find out about that, we'll be the first to tell your wife to pack her bag and call the police. Research has demonstrated recently that um, some of the men most likely to be abusers of their wives are of an evangelical perspective who attend church infrequently. And that freaks me out as a pastor who has to teach the scriptures. And so I just want to be really clear that none of this means that there ought to be a hint of domineering behavior from men towards their wives. That is a complete contradiction. You ought to look like Jesus You ought to look like Jesus. That's what it looks like. That is the picture that Paul has for marriage. 
And so he's got, now look, there's other things that the young women that Paul says there, but we need to spend so much time on that because it's so difficult for us to hear. Things like being kind and being self-controlled. You notice that that's been there for the, the older men, the older women, and the younger women again. And then finally, towards the younger men, Paul says this in verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, to be honest, uh, speaking for myself here, if I was able to walk in self-control as a younger man, I would have saved myself so many headaches and problems in life. Like including the one where I got drunk and crashed my mum's my work car. That would have been probably one of the more significant moments of a lack of sobriety and self-control. But you notice here that self-control is consistent for every single category of people, men, women, old and young, all of them. Paul says self-control is key. Now part of that has to do with the context that is being spoken into here, the Crescians are evil brutes, liars, and lazy gluttons, right? That's the, that's the context here. But part of it is also human nature and the Christian journey of what it looks like to put to death our sinful nature and to walk in holiness and righteousness. I don't know if you remember seeing that experiment um, a couple of years ago on Facebook where researchers placed two kids in a room with a camera and put a marshmallow on a table in front of them and said to the kids, if you don't eat this marshmallow, in 15 minutes I will come back and I will give you a second one and you will have two marshmallows. And the experiment is an experiment in self-control and delayed gratification. And the kids, like you can see the kids there sniffing the marshmallows, some of them licking the marshmallows, picking them up, looking at them. 15 minutes is like an eternity for these kids. And it's actually humorous, but what the research has found is that those kids who are able to um, either delay eating that marshmallow or spend a long time exercising self-control had a number of life measures, like they were smarter, they had, they had higher scores on their um, finishing schools, right? They had better mental health scores. Uh, they're doing research now to try and figure out whether or not those kids ended up being richer. They've done this longitudinal study and followed these kids. Those kids are now retiring and they're trying to figure out all this stuff. They're smarter, they're healthier, are they richer? Self-control is such a key component to basic humanity, let alone what it looks like to be God's people. But the good news is that we have been empowered by the Spirit God has poured His Spirit out on us. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? It's self-control. And so Paul's expectation is that grace would shape and form and change this church and make it a beautiful community where they're walking in holiness and righteousness. But why is this important? Why is character and godliness important? Well, because when we get it wrong, when God's church gets it wrong, people end up maligning our message and saying that we're irrelevant. This is Paul's concern. Have a look at verse 5 and verse 8. He says, Pursue godliness because if we don't, the word of God may be reviled. Or to the younger women, so that, uh, sorry, that was to the younger women. Live this way so that the word of God would not be reviled. Or to all of them in verse 8, so that an opponent um, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. His concern is, as the world watches on, they need to see that we are living in a way that is consistent with our beliefs. When our lives don't add up, when there is a gaping 
uh, gap between our belief and our behavior. It reflects poorly on our message and on God. And the culture around us starts to take shots at us. And fair enough, particularly when it comes to leadership, those who are preaching a message and then living in a way that is entirely contrary to that message. We expect integrity and character from our leaders. And there was a lesson that played out for that on a national scale last year as Barnaby Joyce lost his job because of failure of integrity. We value integrity in our leaders. And we, God values integrity in his church amongst his people. And so Paul's concern is that people would not revile us. But this is what happens when we get it right There is a powerful example and witness to the truth that we proclaim. Have a look at verse 9. This is Paul's instructions to bond servants. He says this in verse 9. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. That it be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. The deal is there are some people who became Christians in this church who were slaves. They came to faith and their master, their ruler, their owner may not have been a Christian in this context. So how are they supposed to act? Paul says this is an opportunity for Jesus. By the way that you live your life, by your loyalty, your integrity, by not stealing, by not being argumentative and talking back, by seeking to bless your master, which would have been totally countercultural you will have an opportunity to show them that your faith is real, that this message is transformative. And that is as true today as it was then. Your actions, your godliness makes the good news attractive. It adorns our message. Now that, the Greek word there, I don't often go to the Greek, but this one's super fun. I just wanted to really take you to the Greek background of this word. The Greek word is kosmeo. And it's where we get our English word cosmetic from. And so what he is saying is that your godliness is the cosmetic of the gospel. It is the cosmetic of the good news. It makes it attractive. That word means to beautify, to make something attractive. It would be kind of like your character, your godliness, is like makeup and perfume and a fine dress. Or a clean shave and a suit and some cologne. That's what he's saying. Your godliness is the of the gospel. That's what he's saying. Now, yes, I get the wolf whistle is sexist and inappropriate. That's not what I'm trying to say. Don't think of the tradey version of that. Think of the version of it like when Tash and I are getting for a wedding and she puts her dress on and I look at her and go, and she's, she loves that, right? Because I'm looking at her and I'm saying, You are attractive to me. You're appealing to me. And what Paul is trying to say is your character, your integrity, your life, your godliness makes the message that you preach attractive to a watching world. Now, what I'm not saying is that the good news is ugly and boring and needs a bit of dressing up. I'm not saying that at all. That's not what Paul is saying. The gospel is glorious. It's beautiful. It's true, irrespective of the way that we live. But, sorry, and neither am I saying preach, you know, um, preach the gospel and when necessary use words. You know that, that old saying. That's not, gospel proclamation is verbal. We need to talk to people about what Jesus has done. But what I am saying, what Paul is saying, is that your character, your integrity, your life 
makes our teaching appealing, makes it attractive, it makes it beautiful, it adorns the message that we speak. Why? Because what we believe affects our life and as people see that, not only do they see that the church is not full of hypocrites, which is one of our, the big criticisms of the church, but they see the power of the gospel at work as it changes and transforms lives. J.C. Ryle, a famous Christian author, says this, I believe there is far more harm done by unholy and consistent Christians than we are aware of. Such men and women are amongst Satan's best allies. Gosh. They pull down by their lives what ministers build up with their lips and they cause the chariot wheels of the gospel to drive heavily. It's a fairly stinging attack. Are you doing the double life thing at the moment? Pretending to be Christian on Sunday and Wednesday night at GC, but the rest of the week you're a total player? Is, is that, that, because there cannot be a sacred secular divide in the life of a Christian. We're a Christian all the time, not just on Sundays. We worship Jesus 24-7. And my deepest hope that for us as a church is that we would be lights in the darkness, like Matthew chapter 5, that we would be salt, preserving what is good, pushing back the darkness, and making the good news of Jesus attractive by our lives, by the power of the Spirit. But the real question is, what motivates this type of life? Like, how do we get there? We know it's important. We know it's important for us. We know it's important for our culture watching us. How do we live like that? Because that is hard. The bar is high. How do we do that? Well, Paul says that it is grace that fuels godliness. Have a look at verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us, trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It is grace that fuels godliness. This is not a message of guilt. Like stop doing all those bad things you've done. Try harder. Guilt never motivates. Well, it never motivates enough. Grace fuels godliness in our lives. Grace not only saves us. It also trains us. It teaches us. It equips us. And so when we stop meditating on the grace of God, there is a flow on impact in our lives. Or perhaps when we default to striving and box ticking and religiosity, there is a flow and effect in our lives. Perhaps the grace of God has become unamazing grace for you. You've, you've, you've lost perspective. And so what I want to do as we close this morning is pause and remember God's grace. What is so amazing about God's grace well, grace means pardon for sins. It means forgiveness. Grace is rescue from the punishment of hell. Jesus took what we deserved. Grace is the gift, the free gift of forgiveness. All of your sins wiped clean as white as snow. Grace is the gift of eternal life. There is no better gift than joy forevermore at God's right hand. Grace is transformation. 
convicted, condemned criminals facing their own punishment to pardoned free heirs of the kingdom. Grace. Grace is undeserved favor. It's unmerited love. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You just needed it and God gave it to you. Grace is amazing. He was not obliged to show it to you. You didn't deserve it. It's grace that when we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And the best part of all, it's free. It's free for us at least. It cost Jesus his life, his blood that was shed, his body broken. Maybe the problem that we have is that we've become complacent with grace. Grace is unamazing grace. And we need to pause and ponder and remind ourselves again of the grace of God that would lead to, that would stir godliness and character in our lives. The solution is to let grace be your coach. Some of you have a personal trainer that you see multiple times a week, who motivates you and trains you and stretches you and encourages you. And that's the role that grace ought to play in your life. Encouraging you, motivating you, strengthening you, training you to be more and more like Jesus. And so as I close this morning, let me just say this to maybe different people in this room. Maybe you're here this morning, you wouldn't identify as a Christian. You wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. My hope is that you would see in this community, you would see something different about us. You would see a consistency in our lives, in the things that roll off our lips and the actions of our hands, and that you would see that they line up and match. Our our hope is that you're drawn by our character, not repelled by it, because we're real, we're genuine, and we practice what we preach. And our hope is to introduce you to the God who motivates that the God of grace. But maybe you are a believer, you are a Christian. I want to say to you this morning, church, are we living consistently? Are we a church, a people of integrity? Because our world desperately needs it from us. Jesus demands it of us. Are we living consistently? Are we closing the gap between our belief and our behavior? And yes, we will never get there. We will never be perfect. But we are called to be a repentant, holy, Christ-like people. And the good news is that what Christ requires of us, He has done for us. When Jesus died, He took all of your sin and He gifted you all of His righteousness. And then He poured His Holy Spirit out on you and empowered you to live like Him. That's our call, church. To be the people of God to a watching world that would make the good news of our Savior beautiful and attractive and appealing and draw people in. Grace-motivated godliness causes people to gravitate towards the gospel. We're going to respond in a second to this grace. And we're going to do that this morning a little bit differently during the Lord's Supper. This morning, we have a number of stations set up around the room, two on the front, two in the middle, and two up the back. And a number of our gospel community leaders are going to administer the elements, the the grape juice, uh, the wine. In fact, I think we've got wine this morning and the bread. And we want to invite those of you who love Jesus, who call yourself Christians, to participate in this meal. This meal is a memorial of grace. It's a reminder of what God has done for us. And so we invite you to come forward and hear the words 
of those who are passing the juice, the, the wine or the bread to you. Remind yourself of the gospel. Repent of any sin in your life and walk in the new freedom of God's grace by the power of His Spirit. We're also going to be responding in prayer this morning. And our prayer team will be up the back. They've got orange lanyards around their neck. They'll also be down here at the conclusion of the service. And they would love to pray for you. Perhaps this morning you realize there's inconsistency in your life. Maybe there's an area of your life where you feel you're not walking in integrity. And the enemy wants nothing more from you than to hide in shame. That's exactly what our first parents, Adam and Eve, did. They hid in the garden. They they sought to cover their nakedness. Jesus wants you to bring your sin into the light, to repent of it, and let his righteousness cover your brokenness and your nakedness. So if that's you this morning and you need to do business with God, I want to encourage you to head to the back, head to the prayer team, have someone pray for you. They would love to do that. And the final way we're going to respond this morning is respond with our giving, our tithes and our generosity. The giving containers are going to come around after the first song is finished. We're going to give you time to head to the tables. Actually, we'll send it during the last song, maybe. Connect team, that might be more helpful. During the last song, our giving containers will come around. We invite those of you who call Anchor Home to give generously, sacrificially, and joyfully. If you're a guest with us this morning, you're under no obligation to give. Please be our guest. You can put your pen and your Connect card into those giving containers. But right now, we're going to respond together as God's people as we praise Him. So I'm going to invite you to stand, church, and I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to worship our God together. Let me pray. Father God, we thank You this morning that what You demand of us, Jesus has done for us by dying in our place for our sin and gifting us His perfect righteousness. God, we confess that every single person who worships You has an area of our life and a part of us that doesn't line up. And you don't expect perfection of us, but you do expect repentance. So God, we want to repent of the areas in our life where we aren't living consistently. We want to bring them to the foot of the cross and thank you that Jesus' blood covers it. And we want to ask for a fresh measure of power and grace from your Spirit to walk out of here in holiness and godliness and character and integrity. God, we want to pray that you would help us to be a church that screams to this watching world that the message that we preach with our lips is real. It changes us. Help us, God, to be this type of church. We need you. Fill us with your spirit. We worship you and we pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.